0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. I tell you, if these stones were silent, no, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. That's the line from the end of of the Palm Sunday gospel that we had at the beginning. And that line has always captured my imagination. Let me try it again since I bungled it. I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. It always makes me imagine all the stones right outside these walls in the cemetery shouting out. What strikes me every time I walk among those stones in either of our cemeteries, I see the sheer volume of immense personal tragedy that is represented in both of our churchyards. Walk around and see how many dates you find from the Spanish influenza epidemic. They're there. The graves tell the stories of whole families, sometimes united in death, oftentimes in the very same year. In our brick church uh, cemetery, right outside the window where I preach, is the grave of one of our former rectors. His whole family is buried there. They all died within one year. And then he packed up and moved away. We see pandemics. We see privations. We see sometimes even war represented in those stones. And long after these personal tragedies have passed from any living memory, the very stones themselves stand there as silent centuries, quietly shouting out these tales of human tragedy and personal impasse and checkmate. Something that has surprised me when I walk around in Lakemont Cemetery, just over the hill here, is the recent trend of adding things to the backs of the stones. Perhaps you've noticed this, the front still contain the names and the dates, but the backs now are beginning to include poetry, favorite quotes, all sorts of things to try and remember the departed and to capture something of their personality so that when everyone who can remember that individual is also buried under a stone. The stones themselves will cry out remembering that person. I don't mean to harp so much on death today, but remember our Lenten journey began in death and is a journey from death to life. But it is a journey that must go through Christ's death in order to arrive at eternal life. There's an old line from the pre-1979 prayer book burial office that I absolutely love, and I hate that we dropped it when we revised the prayer book all those years ago, and it's something that you will find oftentimes engraved, inscribed on Episcopal gravestones. It is our hope to die, in the comfort of a reasonable religion and a holy hope." I love those words. That is what I hope to bring you all in Holy Week. The comfort of a reasonable religion and a holy hope. Isn't that what we seek when we come here on Holy Week? That's certainly what the poor souls who stumble into these buildings on Good Friday who have never darkened a church door or have not in years That is what they are coming here looking for, whether they realize it or not. The comfort of a reasonable religion and a holy hope. That sounds pretty darn good to me. I want to have that comfort of a reasonable religion and a holy hope. And as your priest, I want to help you to have that same thing. And it's interesting to me to see such a wonderful thought coming from our burial rites. Because it cannot help but remind us of one of the ironies of the Christian life, the very irony behind this week. The fact that Christianity is not first and foremost rooted in the kind of life that we lead. Oh, how many sermons are are preached about how you should be living your life. That is part of it. But death, actually turns out to be the starting point for Christian belief. Christianity begins with and is rooted in not just the kind of life we are to lead, but the death we are to die. And it is out of that death, understanding how death is changed by Christ's death, that the Christian life actually becomes something different. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In order to understand what's happening here on Palm Sunday, we need to look back to the text. Not the Passion Gospel that I just read, but the Palm Sunday text, the beginning of Holy Week, which at Luke actually began with an important clue. It's a little throwaway line, but every time Luke gives you one of those, it's a clue. He tells us, after telling a parable to the crowd at Jericho, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Sounds reasonable enough. But as I said, anytime Luke points backwards to something that happened before, he's trying to illuminate for us what's happening now. We thus have to look at what Jesus said at Jericho, because it will shed light on the action that is happening today. And the parable that Jesus told at Jericho was that one about a a nobleman who is going away and he gives money to three servants for them to invest it. And when he returns to his home, he returns as a king. And the story unfolds from there. That parable is literally known as the kingship parable. There's your clue. So Jesus told a parable in which he is revealing his kingship. And now that kingship is unfolding before everyone's eyes writ large as he processes into the city of the kings of Judea. The waving of palm branches, which is actually left out of today's account. Did you see that? We all waved palm branches that aren't there in Luke. And that's important. That's another clue. It's because palm branches were a nationalistic symbol of Israel. But Luke isn't emphasizing that nationalistic aspect. Instead, for Luke, it is Christ's kingship that is front and center. Jesus has just openly declared himself to be the king. And this scene is confirming that wide multitudes of people understood that claim. They accepted that claim because of the works Jesus had done, the miracles they had seen, and experienced. And then Luke gives us one more clue. The crowd shouts. What do they shout? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Does that sound familiar? Coming straight out of Luke's mouth back on Christmas Eve. Luke is purposefully echoing the angels who appeared to the shepherds abiding in the fields. And this scene Luke is bringing us full circle with his nativity narrative. The babe who was declared by the angels themselves to be king is about to accomplish that purpose for which he was born as he enters the royal city of the kings of Judea. And so In order to get a handle on what's going on as Jesus begins this last week of his life, we need to be reminded of what we saw in his nativity, what Luke was trying to show us as Jesus began his life among us, to remember what kind of a king Jesus is. This king came into this world with no royal birthing room, he was not to the purple born as were the kings of Byzantium. No attendees or lady, ladies-in-waiting or any of the trappings of a royal birth. His birth was a humble affair. Luke here today is reminding us one more time that Jesus was never meant to be a royal robes sort of a king. He is no Herod. Instead, he is God's king. And as God's king, God has humbled himself to live among us he has humbled himself to die among us and God's death will be for God's subjects by their own hands think about that for a minute think about our culpability and God's King does this for a purpose and the purpose is so that all of the caskets buried out there at whatever cemetery wherever on earth those little boxes are no longer exitless one-way tickets. And that may sound like one of the most unreasonable statements for a reasonable religion to be making. But that is nevertheless what we believe. Christianity is rooted in the kind of death we are to die because that death was forever changed by Christ's death. Because of Christ's death, our deaths are now no longer permanent such that although we die at the same time, we live. Perhaps that's why Christ's death had to be one of the most horrific deaths imaginable. Have you ever wondered where the English language... we actually have a word for how bad it was. Excruciating. Excruciating pain. Excruciata. Pain like that coming out of the cross. That's what that means. Excruciata. But if it was going to bring about eternal life for the world... And I suppose it had to be a death to end all deaths, literally. And again, that may sound unreasonable in terms of religion. And I'm coming to the end here. But when we remember our Lenten journey and the constant reminders we were given that we could never have attained salvation on our own, that salvation must come from outside of ourselves, And then we remember that God alone could die the death that saved us. That God alone could defeat death. And then it all starts to make sense. Because it is by this humble death of God as king that you and I are forever saved from trying to earn a way out of death on our own. That debt is forever paid. And the unreasonableness that is forever banished turns out to be our vain belief that we could have ever done this on our own. Our holy hope becomes forever linked to the fact that in Christ we have died and in Christ we now live. That's it. It is that that we commemorate as we walk through this final week of Jesus' life. It is that that we remember on Maundy Thursday as his friends desert him without so much as even a goodbye. It is that that we remember on Good Friday as he hangs blameless on what is really our cross. It is that that we celebrate as we sit Holy Vigil Saturday night Awaiting his arrival as our risen Lord. These are holy mysteries that we commemorate and celebrate each year in Holy Week. As unreasonable as it may sound, this turns out to be the most reasonable answer possible. Really, the only answer possible. And it is not just a holy hope. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our only hope. Amen.